вас, Украину мы вернем, А всех предателей мы быстренько прибьем. Hello and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. I'm honored to speak today once again to our guest, Sergei Grabsky, a colonel in reserve in the Ukrainian military, who has unique, insightful views on this war by virtue of his experience and being based in Ukraine. So, Sergei, when we last talked to you in September, that was after a very successful counteroffensive by the Ukrainian military in the north, in the Kharkiv region, and since then we had another a very successful offensive taking back uh, part of Kherson Oblast and the city of Kherson. Now you have these major battles taking place in the Donbass with Bakhmut that's been taking place since early in the summer time frame. There are some reports that the Russians are making progress around Solidar with Wagner Group by Prigozhin taking the offensive there. Where, where do things stand really and where do you see them going right now? Uh, well, uh, if you're talking about like a general concept of operation, I'm talking about like uh, all uh, line of contact, I would say that there is only one small portion where Russian forces now try to continue their offensive actions. Uh, and we are talking about a minor section between Solidar and uh, Klishivka, I can say, which is uh, which all of uh, belong to so-called Bakhmut uh, stronghold. And uh, Russians try to achieve even one single victory just to break the line of uh, losses over there and surroundings over there. On In other locations, we do not observe any serious activity of Russian forces which may uh, show any attempts of uh, other offensive actions. And uh, if we will pay attention to north from Bakhmut, uh, I would like to concentrate on the section of the front line between Svato and Kremina, where Ukrainian forces continue steady offensive actions. And uh, now we are talking about the approaching to the Kremina city, and uh, it, it makes like uh, positions uh, available for further development of offensive operations in the direction of so-called northern, uh, northern uh, Lugansk region. And uh, it is um, one quite important point. And also, you know, uh, I don't know why, but most of attention of uh, mass media, of journalists or other observers attracted to the Bakhmut Solidar uh, section. However, uh, I would like to pay your attention to Vugledar, Vugledar actually, uh, where we have a quite interesting situation. Why? From my point of view, so Ugledar, uh, Vugledar looks even more uh, important for all concept of defensive actions of Ukrainian, uh, of Russian forces, because of uh, taking of Vugledar by Russians will mean that uh, Russians will. Uh, push back uh, the threat of uh, permanent influence to the the ground uh, logistic uh, lines, uh, which supported to so-called uh, Southern Front of Russian Federation, and for Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian defense forces, as we call them now. 
uh, it is interesting uh, position where we can develop an offensive action destroying Russian defense in that particular location. And uh, on another wing of our south front, I would like to pay attention to so-called left bank of the river Dnieper and, uh, or as I call it uh, usually, uh, Herson uh, Triangle, which means, in my definition, uh, uh, temporary occupied uh, Herson Oblast, I mean left bank of the river Dnieper, which belonged to the Herson Oblast. And the Eastern Bank. Will, uh, yeah, Eastern. Uh, yeah, so, sorry, it's a difference in our uh, description. We we try to we we normally use like a left or right bank, uh, yes. but from geographical perspective, it is it's an Eastern bank, indeed. Well, uh, and when we are talking about that Eastern bank of the River Dnieper and uh, in in Kherson Oblast in particular, if you will pay attention to the map, you will see that uh, that Eastern uh, bank is uh, almost under fire control of uh, Ukrainian defense forces. Uh, what does it mean in practice? It means that Russians are not able to create uh, sufficient lines of defense over there because they they suffer from uh, permanent uh, Ukrainian attacks and they can't concentrate enough troops, uh, enough, res- enough resources, ammunition and fuel, for instance, in that direction. What does it mean in a nearest perspective? It means it, it is a case when uh, Ukrainian forces may advance in that direction. And uh, I would like to nominate our next target. And that, net, uh, that next target has a name Melitopol. Uh, Melitopol is very important for, for uh, all composition of the south direction because of uh, retaking or liberation, as we call it from Ukrainian perspective. Liberation of Melitopol will mean breaking of so-called ground corridor between Russian Federation and Crimea. And who knows, maybe a successful offensive of Ukrainian forces will reach to the not only to the borders of Crimea, but to the lands of Crimea. And we will enter uh, on shoulders of our enemies to, to Crimea and will develop that offensive actions, which will make incredibly high impact to all structure of Kremlin regime. Because of, you know, sure. uh, you know, Kremlin, uh, Kremlin, Kremlin always says it's a, a Crimea is a, like a holy land or heartland of Russian Federation. It must be part of Russia and so on and so on. But it looks like they are not able to protect it at the moment. And uh, that is why, you know, I, I know I, I may look a little bit cynic, but uh, in my perce- perspective, it's uh, it looks like Ukrainian forces try to attract as much as possible attention and forces to so-called that narrow section uh, and s- s- small section between uh, Solidar, Bakhmut and Klishivka in Donetsk to exhaust uh, exhausting uh, Russian forces and uh, prevent them to from developing of so-called offensive uh, groups of troops on other directions. And so, Russians, so there's a lot. Is, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. So let, let's take it one at a time. So uh, I want to come back to Bakhmut for a second because there's been okay. a, a perception in in the West here, including in the government and the media, that. This offensive by the Russians in Bakhmut is pointless, that the city doesn't hold much value. But what I've heard from some of the folks uh, fighting in Bakhmut on the Ukrainian side is that it is actually really important because if the Russians manage to take Bakhmut, 
then their positions, the Ukrainian positions in Siversk and Solidar, potentially get cut off and it becomes much easier to advance on Krematorsk and Slovansk. Do you agree with that? Is is there a real threat that if the Russians manage to take Bakhmut that it would endanger Ukrainian positions in the rest of the Donetsk Oblast? I could say partially. I could partially be agreed with that because, of, you know, technically, if we will glance on the map, on current map, capture of Bakhmut by Russians will not affect Ukrainian positions uh, so much as we could imagine or some of our guys may describe. Because, of you know, uh, it makes uh, it made made sense before when Russians had a group of troops in Izum. Well, from that perspective, from latest May, maybe June, uh, beginning of July, simultaneous offensive of Russian forces from the north, from Izum to south to Slovyansk, and from the south to from Bakhmut to the north, may create a huge uh, problem for Ukrainian forces defending uh, that part of Lugansk Oblast. But now, if you will uh, glance on the map, you you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't find any specific uh, threats for Ukrainian forces. Moreover, I could say that the Ukrainian forces created during the long period of uh, war, eight years, more than eight years, almost nine years, a well-developed uh, network and uh, zone of defensive positions over there. So even withdrawal from Bakhmut right now uh, will mean that uh, Russians after a couple kilometers will will face with uh, another strongholds and uh, defensive position of Ukrainian armed forces. Moreover, you know, for some reason, Bakhmut now like a symbol of resistance. And as I said before, Bakhmut, I'm talking about not only Bakhmut, but Bakhmut, Solidar and Klishivka. It's like a one district, military district and stronghold mm-hmm. in, in general. So it looks like uh, as soon as Ukrainian forces will keep it and it will make a, it would make sense to keep those positions why because of you know uh, we have a, an experience of uh, Popasna we have an experience of Volnovakh and Novotoshkivske where Russians completely and 100% destroyed all of those locations what does it mean from military perspective? You can't even restore your defensive lines over there, your defensive position. So it would not many. It would not make any sense just to protect uh, those fully destroyed and uh, demolished lines and positions. With that, uh, from that perspective, Ukrainian forces could withdraw, but till now. Till we are able to just to keep the line of defense, we will do that. Why? Because of it, 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 it is a part of task of a defensive operation. Exhaust offensive troops, defeat them, and uh, stop them on their positions. And uh, yeah. that is why I, w- I could say that the reason of uh, keeping the so-called Bakhmut line at that moment and this mo- at this moment is about just uh, to attract more and more Russian forces and uh, chop them, if I may to use uh, such a symbol to a defini- or definition to chop them in that uh, in that re- district. Uh, and exhaust them from operational and strategic perspective, which will may create uh, some options, as I mentioned before, for Ukrainian offensive in other directions. This is the reason why we... uh, 
excuse me, let me finish because it's very important from my perspective. This is the first position. And second one, I had a chat, quite often chats, with my boys who are now in uh, Bakhmut. And they said, Sergi, of course, from military perspective, we can make step back just to withdraw to another position. But listen, it's a bloody uh, almost 10 months of the war. We can't withdraw every time. We have to stop Russians over there and push them back from our lands. This is a, let's say, a mental point of the defense. Now that that makes total sense. Is there another reason, though? You know, two friends of the podcast, Mike Kaufman, who we've met, and and Rob Lee, have written a paper recently talking about how the offensive in the Donbas in late spring and summer of this year was in part responsible for the successes that the Ukrainians have had in, in Kharkiv and Kherson because it exhausted so much of the Russian offensive capacity, both ammunition supplies and manpower. So could this be yet another reason to hold Bakhmut and to make them exhaust their forces and munitions and prevent them from being able to take uh, on the offensive in the spring? Uh, it is absolutely correct conclusion, I have to say, because of, uh, this is what I'm talking about. We are uh, doing uh, defensive actions. We try to exhaust Russian forces. Moreover, we achieve a result because of even, let's say, external observers uh, stated that Russians decrease intensity of artillery fire uh, roughly in two or three times. Uh, somehow for 60%. That is why it's it's a reasonable price which we are paying for uh, our defense and potential offensive actions of Ukrainian army. Uh, and uh, let me come back a little bit uh, to the Slovia- uh, Severodonetsk and, uh, and uh, Lysychansk. If you remember the situation, after desperate clashes, Ukrainian forces withdrew from those locations. But what wo- uh, what was the next step of Russians? Zero steps. Zero step because of they tried to reach to Bilohirka, Bilohorika, excuse me, and then they were pushed back and stopped. And uh, there is no even one single movement from that time, from at, let's say mid of July till now, uh, on that uh, section of the front line. It may be the same. Moreover, uh, if you will use, let's say, geographical map of that region, I'm talking about the Donetsk region, you will see that the uh, Russian offensive in that direction is pointless because of uh, that location, the, the geography of that location is like a highly urbanized territory where Russians uh, are not able to use their strong uh, parts uh, or uh, strong prevalences such as uh, artillery, tanks uh, and uh, massive attacks. They must to cut their troops in a small portion of troops like uh, they call it assault groups. But in fact, assault group means like a platoon. And they have to exhaust themselves using those platoons without any artillery uh, support, uh, any tank uh, tank supply support and uh, aviation support. So it's like a terrible battle uh, coming back to the World War One. But the count and the balance between losses of Ukrainian forces and uh, Russian forces is uncomparable. Uncomparable, because of Russians as an offensive part or offensive side uh, lose more and more, uh, much more troops than Ukrainian. 
do. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the north now that you've mentioned, the Luhansk Oblast. So we spent time talking about Donetsk. So that's where the Ukrainians are on the counteroffensive, as you said, in Kamina and Svarova. So why do those cities matter? So if Bakhmut uh, is, is kind of a pointless offensive for the Russians because of defense and depth lines that would prevent them from making further gains, if Ukraine is able to take Kamina, does that open up possibility for taking much more of the Luhansk Oblast? Do the Russians have the de- uh, defense and depth fortifications there? Indeed, indeed. This is the reason. And there are two key points in that direction. I'm talking about Svatova and Kremina. Kremina is a suburb of a so-called uh, urban conglomerate, as we call it, uh, Rubizhne, uh, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. And taking that uh, that uh, location, taking that town, we will open the door or gates to uh, development of offensive to to the let's say uh, second line of Russian defense. Second line of Russian defense is uh, Starobelsk Novoyedar, and it will cut off uh, supply lines from uh, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk which will make a position where Ukrainian forces would be able just to liberate those locations, which uh, fully terminate all achievements of Russian offensive during the spring and summer time. This is a so-called south flank, and uh, in case of development of Ukrainian offensive to the uh, northeast, to the direction of Starobelsk, and recapturing or liberation of Svatove, uh, we will have a situation where liberation of uh, north of the Lugansk Oblast or Lugansk region uh, will be reason of time only. And, and, uh, and that, that geography is not deeply populated, right? It's, it's very foresty, so you don't have absolutely. necessarily a lot of Russian forces there. Yeah, they don't have, first of all, they don't have uh, a lot of Russian forces there. And it is technically difficult in such a short period of time to create a real strong holds and defense lines uh, as Russians declared. In fact, we found uh, it's like a toy uh, toy defensive systems, as we call it there, because of, you know, those uh, tooth of dragon does not look like a real one. I can compare it with the German ones, which Germans did during the uh, First and Second World War in on the West. Uh, but I have to note that Russians uh, clearly understand the situation which may happen and which may to take place in that direction. And that is why we observe a huge concentration of Russian troops uh, in Svatova as a dead, uh, let's say, uh, last point of defense. And uh, we observe permanent deployment of troops and supplies, ammunition, armament uh, on the direction from Starobelsk to Svatova. Moreover, uh, Ukrainian intelligence services and, uh, let's say, open sources, let's call it uh, open sources, uh, discover a big concentration of Russian troops in the zone of Rovinki, which belongs to the Belgorod Oblast of Russian Federation, neighboring to the Lugansk Oblast of Ukraine. It means that Russians understand an importance of uh, keeping those, uh, of keeping of that region under control, and uh, we may anticipate quite serious clashes over there. 
if exactly. Russians would be able to de- to deploy enough troops there. The, but critical and key point is if they would be able to deploy enough troops. Okay, and then the, the other part of the Ukrainian offensive that you mentioned is Vugladar, which is in the southern part of Donetsk Oblast and sort of directly north of Mariupol. And does that present an opportunity to try to do an offensive uh, and retake Mariupol if, if Vugladar falls? Well, actually, it is not about retaking Mariupol because of, uh, I beg my pardon, uh, it doesn't make any sense. To retake what? To retake fully destroyed location which previously called Mariupol? Well, from military perspective at this moment, it, it doesn't make any sense. But you, you would also cut off the land bridge to Crimea, right? Uh, yes, yes. This is, this is another option to cut off a land bridge to Crimea, or corridor as we call it. Why? Because right now, an, uh, the importance of uh, Vugledar position is uh, because of Ukrainian forces are able to make an influence uh, to uh, Rozivka and Volnovakha, two uh, key points on the railway, but you should remember that the railway is a backbone of Russian logistics. And Russians strongly rely on railways as the main uh, support and supply lines over there. So right now, Ukrainian forces are able to influence those uh, two key points. And in addition to that, long-range artillery and missiles are able to uh, hit positions and uh, lines of communication of Russian troops on approaches and in suburbs of Mariupol. What does it mean, in fact? In fact, Russians right now are able to use only one... uh, uh, road running from Rostov through the Mariupol to Berdyansk uh, uh, close to the seaside and this is it only one road which also makes the positions quite weak in that direction this is a key point uh, for Russians well, also to because take... because the Crimean bridge is still under repair and the rail line seems to be stopped this is the key resupply ground lines of communication for the yeah. Russian forces in that region, right? Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, frankly speaking, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, I have been shocked uh, why Russians are not able just to recover uh, traffic capacity of the Crimea bridge in a certain period of time. They are not able, which uh, also shows a very uh, weak position from the perspective of logistics supply and support lines. It shocked me, but reality is a play for Ukraine. Uh, what I'm talking about, it's about like a possibility to uh, move ahead and uh, uh, advance to the uh, Azov seaside. seaside. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what what uh, will it mean uh, from military perspective? It will mean that we can't stop. We can't stop uh, calling uh, uh, the Crimea uh, semi peninsula as a real uh, air carrier of Russian Federation, and will be like a exercise field for Ukrainian artillery and missiles. Okay, so, so the other place you mentioned is Melitopol, which is, as you said, right in between the lines of communication for the Russians going north to Zaporizhia, going east to Berdyansk and Mariupol, going west uh, to, it's towards Kherson and, and going south towards Crimea. However, you know, it's, it's inland from the river, so reaching is hard. So, you know, the two options are crossing the river from the western bank of uh, uh, Kherson Oblast to the eastern bank or trying to 
get around it and going south from Zaporizhia. What, what do you think is the most likely alternative? There's been a lot of talk that this small island in the uh, city of Kherson, Veliki Potomkin, that apparently the Ukrainians have retaken, could be an opportunity for them to actually cross the river and get on the eastern side of the, of the bank of the river and continue the offensive there. Do you think that's realistic or, or is the no, um, it is north to south offensive? No, it is absolutely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely unrealistic because, of you know, even Russian withdrawal, uh, withdrawal from the western bank of Dnieper shows that the, any crossing of the river by any part of the conflict looks absolutely unrealistic. You know, uh, destroying of all lines of communication, I'm talking about the bridges and dam uh, between uh, left and, uh, excuse me, west and uh, east bank, uh, means that uh, Ukrainian forces are not able just to conduct any real offensive operations crossing the river because of there is no uh, capabilities to sustain attacking troops. With that regard, uh, I would like to pay attention to another perspective. And uh, I quite, uh, frankly speaking, I, I was mentioning it a little bit. Uh, we are talking about the um, permanent destroying of uh, Russian command and control posts, uh, concentration of troops, uh, warehouses, uh, and uh, military depots on the eastern bank of the river Dnieper from the western bank without uh, crossing the river uh, to create an option when Ukrainian forces would be able after quite significant destroying of uh, all uh, positions of Russian forces uh, on the eastern bank uh, to conduct a frontal uh, offensive operation from the line of Vasilivka or Rikhiv Gulaipole uh, to direction of uh, Tokmak and uh, Melitopol. And uh, don't forget, and many maps mention that uh, the Ukrainian resistance forces, or partisans as we call it, insurgents, are quite active in that uh, in that districts. So it will be like a double impact from outside and from inside of uh, Russian uh, defensive zone, which may and well, not may. I am confident it will destroy Russian defense over there and will create uh, possibilities for development of uh, offensive Russian or Ukrainian troops to the direction of uh, Azov Sea. Let's talk about that offensive because we had some big news, good news coming for Ukraine in the last week or so, where you had both the Germans, the French, and the Americans agreeing to supply infantry fighting vehicles, MX-10P from the French, Bradleys from the Americans, martyrs from the Germans, although some some countries try to spin it as light tanks. They're really infantry fighting vehicles. And then um, there's news in the last day or so that the UK is considering sending Challenger 2 tanks, actual main battle tanks, although in very small numbers, about 10 of them. And, you know, what it looks to me like is, is that this is really an attempt to pressure the Germans to send Leopard 2 tanks that are much more beneficial and usable by the Ukrainians versus the Challengers and and the M1 Abrams from the U.S., but the Germans have made it very clear that they don't want to be the first ones to supply the the tanks or the only ones, so this is an attempt to kind of get get everyone to come on board, just like they did with infantry fighting vehicles. How big of a deal is that for the Ukrainian offensive potentials um, across all of these fronts that we've just discussed? 
It's not so big deal. At that particular st stage, it is not a so big deal. Why? Because uh, I would like to glance on it from another perspective. You know, we received a lot of tanks. We received a, a lot of infantry battle vehicles and APCs and artillery system. But uh, the key point, uh, what type of those uh, tanks, vehicles and other things, Russian or Soviet type? Uh, it means that uh, we used, and uh, frankly speaking, I, uh, I may state that we exhausted all options uh, of using of post-Soviet uh, armament and equipment. And now we are on the initial stage of re replacing of old Soviet staff uh, by the Western staff as we call it so and uh, this uh, this transferring and this uh, delivery of uh, such a numbers of uh, armored vehicles is like a first initial stage of, of replacement from a exact or practical military perspective it does not make a critical sense for nearest or closest ukrainian offensive actions because of the percentage of uh, Western military equipment would be not enough just to uh, allow us to say that, uh, okay, guys, we, we are able to conduct that offensive because we have a, a certain number of uh, Western army, uh, armament and uh, equipment. But it is a very important gesture. And it is, uh, I would like to say, the uh, December transfer is like a key point and turn point in uh, all uh, war uh, between Ukraine and Russia. When the Western state states started to deploy uh, their ammunition and their armament to the field. So I, uh, I, uh, in conclusion, I could say that yes, uh, each of uh, these uh, vehicles or tanks uh, are, is very and very helpful for Ukrainian armed forces, uh, but in perspective. Indeed, we will use it widely, but in the future, we will replace all of our staff by the Western staff, and it will create a huge advance of Ukrainian armed forces to compare with Russian armed forces. So, so it's all about the numbers, right? So, so I believe your uh, Chief of General Staff Zeluzhny said that he needs about 300 tanks. You know, it's not clear if Ukraine is going to get that many, given that Germany, for example, has about 240 total Leopard 2 tanks. Obviously, they're not going to give everything. There are some other countries that have them as well, but it's going to be tough, I think, to get to the numbers that he's asking for. But one reason I think that movement to Western tanks is important is that I presume just like with your artillery piece says you're starting to run out of ammunition for the Soviet tanks that they use the 125 millimeter smooth bore shells versus the 120 millimeter Western shells. So that's going to become an issue for you, even yep. if you still have lots of tanks, because I know you've captured a lot of them from Russia as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, you know, uh, uh, there is another uh, quite important thing which must be taken into consideration. Uh, support and supply and maintenance and supply. You know, uh, what was the reason to deploy a lot of post-Soviet uh, armament and ammunition and uh, equipment to Ukraine? Because of Ukraine has already developed uh, support and supply chain, chains and uh, system 
And uh, you know, it was a, a clear and quite interesting example. Uh, what can we do as a Ukrainian armed forces with a, a Western uh, armament? And good example was about the Panzer howitzers of German of Germany, uh, because of after a certain period of uh, exploring uh, using them, we were forced to deploy it back to Germany for repair and maintenance. In case of howitzers, it doesn't make so significant impact as as it may be in case of tanks, because of uh, uh, practically. Uh, tank uh, looks more vulnerable uh, tool on the battlefield to compare with howitzer because of tank uh, always operate on the front line so and uh, even from the mathematic perspective uh, anticipation of hitting of tank much higher than artillery system so in practice what does it mean after one battle we have to move back to Germany or to United Kingdom that uh, those tanks for uh, maintenance and repair, come on, does it make any yeah. sense? We may create uh, all of those chains of uh, support and supply, maintenance and repair in place just to make it quicker, uh, to make the, that equipment more efficient. And that is why that small portion does not look uh, like a joke from British side, for instance. It's a good test uh, and a good opportunity for Ukrainian armed forces or defense forces just to test their ability to repair and operate with that uh, partially small number of uh, armament, which will make a, uh, a way to expansion of using of armament and equipment of the Western part or Western countries in Ukrainian uh, reality. So, so I imagine being a, a mechanic, a maintenance and logistics person in the Ukrainian military right now is one of the toughest jobs because you literally have the Noah's Ark of weapons, two of each kind of pretty much everything that people have been donating to you and maintaining that, keeping it running and fixing it, um, it must be just an absolute nightmare how are the folks uh, keeping up with it? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. When I uh, have a chance to speak with my colleagues from the logistic department, they said we are survived now in a situation of real nightmare, logistic nightmare, because it is not about only two main division, I mean Soviet and the Western, uh, Western types of uh, armamented equipment. Even uh, those howitzers, even those howitzers with a caliber 155 millimeters has a specifics, uh, and uh, trust me, it's a quite big differences in the maintenance and repair between German, Polish, Swedish, and uh, for instance, uh, French howitzers. You can imagine what is that. So it's a um, it's a miracle for my guys to deal with that. They do their best just to make sure uh, that they would be able to operate with that equipment. And more, uh, moreover, uh, I spoke with some of them and they said, we made some improvements uh, to use uh, that stuff because of, you know, we, uh, we now expand uh, capability of each uh, howitzer, not, not each howitzer, but some of them in two or maybe three times. 
So it's about the deheating of uh, barrels. Uh, it's about like uh, recoil systems and so on, so on, so on. They did a great job, and you know now we uh, we should start thinking about deploy to deploy uh, specialists from the Western countries how to deal with the different types of armament and equipment in the real field conditions, resisting like a real threat of uh, Russian quite old, but still operating stuff there. Let me ask you about another weapons platform. We, we've seen since February 24th this incremental approach to providing more weapon systems, obviously the, the dam breaking on infantry fighting vehicles now, maybe tanks. The one thing that has still not been discussed um, significantly is fighter jets. And this has been a real puzzling thing for me because even though... The Ukrainian Air Force has done a, a marvelous job keeping their planes flying. You know, the conditions in which they're flying, we, we've had a podcast with uh, folks from the Rusi UK think tank, uh, Justin Bronk and, and Jack Watling, who said that, you know, because they're flying at such low altitudes, the pressure on the airframes is so massive that you're going to have some real problems keeping these planes operational over the next year. So you're going to have to move to Western jets at some point, and uh, it's been a puzzle to me why the discussions have not yet started on training your pilots on appropriate jets, um, thinking which jets are, are most capable. Justin Bronk from Rusi believes that the Gripens from the Swedish yeah. military are the most appropriate given the state of your runways and that the F-16 is just too finicky to, to operate in those conditions. What are you hearing from the Ukrainian side about about the fighter jet situation and and how critical it is? Because it seems to me like if you're going to launch major offensives, if you if you can actually establish air dominance, that would make the whole problem much much easier to resolve. Establishing of air dominance is a key point of any offensive. Moreover, if you are thinking about let's say uh, offensive on the south. You, you should. We should realize that the Russian uh, Russians have a well developed and extended uh, uh, airfield uh, network in Crimea, so it will be quite a difficult uh, option for us just to take an advance and advantage uh, over the Russian aviation over there. And uh, it doesn't matter how many Challengers uh, or Leopard 2 or other tanks will be in the field without uh, air coverage, it will not make any sense. Uh, so, and you definitely write just that uh, it is a additional uh, or uh, another iteration of our discussion with uh, our Western uh, allies. Uh, and uh, the reason the reason is uh, mostly the same as we have discussed already with uh, uh, armament and, uh, and uh, western tanks maintenance and supply and repair system in place which makes the deployment of uh, western aviation even more complicated to compare with tanks and our st- and other stuff there uh, and indeed it's quite difficult uh, it will take much more time just to prepare crews of those uh, uh, fighter jets in ukrainian armed forces and uh, uh, as an additional perspective we must 
commonly we must determine which type of uh, air jet uh, could be uh, the most sufficient for Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, you can imagine, we have discussed already that uh, situation with a logistic nightmare in case of artillery. You can imagine what will happen if we, if we will start deploy different types of uh, air jets to Ukraine. So uh, this is the reason uh, of thinking twice about the uh, financial efficiency and battle efficiency. What would do you, be do you have a view on which jet, which jet would be mo- most beneficial to you? Is it the Gripen? Is it the F-16? Uh, well, I'm not an expert in the uh, Air Forces, so I have no clue about it. I, uh, I have only one uh, confidence. We strongly need it. We strongly yep. need uh, air jets. But what type... I beg your pardon, I am not an expert. So let me ask you a couple of questions on Crimea. So one, now that you have control of the Western Bank, presumably the North Crimean Canal that supplies the water to Ukraine can be targeted by your artillery on the Western Bank. And uh, that was a key priority for the Ukrainians when the Russians first occupied Crimea to turn off the water to Crimea. The Russians blew up that dam that was put in place once they captured that territory in, in February in March, but is it possible to destroy the canal with artillery right now from the Western Bank or no? No, no it is impossible and it doesn't make any sense. First of all, that canal uh, does not operate properly because of after eight years of uh, occupation, uh, the system and network of that canal uh, almost destroyed. And uh, Russian, yeah, Russian may blow up whatever they want, the damp, and uh, show that the water is running now to Crimea, but in fact, it is not. That water disappears in the lands of the northern Crimea without reaching a reaching to, to the southern part of Crimea. Because, you know, it's like a difference in attitude between different parts of the channel and pumping stations were completely destroyed during the initial period of occupation, first, years, first eight years of occupation. So, yes, uh, they may partially use it water resources, uh, but they did not restore full operational capability of that canal. Got it. That is why it doesn't make any sense for Ukrainians to attack and exhaust their uh, quite uh, limited uh, ammunition and uh, uh, artillery options uh, to attack that facility, I can say. So, so there's a lot of talk in the West here that, you know, maybe if Ukraine is successful in its counteroffensives, that maybe it would stop at February 24 borders. But you said something really interesting at the beginning. You, you basically are implying that if Melitopol is retaken, then the next target may be Crimea, not an attempt to take Mariupol from a, a sort of priorities. And that Crimea is going to be a, a key focus for Ukraine. Is that because of the logistics that the Russians have in Crimea? And, and, and what about the difficulty of retaking that peninsula given its size and the fact that you have now a lot of Russians that have been imported there? You have some people that used to be Ukrainians but have not switched sides effectively. And will they put up a resistance if you actually attempt to invade? 
No, no. This is, this is a question. Uh, I am absolutely confident. I have to repeat. I am absolutely confident. Uh, local population will not resist uh, against the Ukrainian offensive in Crimea. Also, you know, uh, my confi- confidence based on the like uh, historical examples, and the specific of Crimea as a geographical territory is uh, limited capabilities to conduct any defensive actions over there. There were three offensive in Crimea uh, during the 20th century: 1920 by Red Army. Crimea resisted. If I'm not mistaken, two weeks only. Uh, in twenty, in ninety, and by the way, in that time you had significant white forces, right? Tsarist forces based in Crimea, so it wasn't like there were there, there was no, uh, no one to resist um, the Red Army invasion. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, white forces resisted desperately over there, but uh, because of the, uh, there is no. Uh, uh, there is no even one single line where we can stop uh, offensive running from north in Crimea. It is even technically impossible to create any lines of uh, defense over there, which may ensure that you will keep those lines. The same story was in 1941, when Soviet forces in Crimea uh, were much bigger to compare with Germans. Did it, did it stop Germans? No. And the same story in 1944, which looks like a crystal example what could happen in case of Ukrainian offense, offensive there. Why? Because of Soviet army cut it off uh, Crimea from all uh, lines of uh, and chains of supply and communications over there. They block it, create like a real uh, Crimea island which we are going to do in the same way, cutting off uh, supply lines from Mariupol, cutting off supply lines uh, coming from uh, Crimea Bridge. So, in fact, it will be like a Crimea Island. And uh, keeping of, the, of Crimea as a part of uh, Russian defense will not make sense. Right now, and moreover, you know, it's like a, we are not talking about like immediate advance of Ukrainian forces in a deeply inside of Crimea. But you can imagine, and uh, I mentioned it already, uh, that Ukrainian forces will appear on the seaside of uh, Azov Sea, on the shore of Azov. So, w- what it will mean? Uh, what will it mean? It will mean that Ukrainian uh, forces will deploy uh, anti-ship uh, missiles to Azov shore, to Azov uh, coasts, and uh, we will influence to the position of uh, Russian forces in Azov and Black Sea. Uh, that is why we uh, we didn't mention, but it is quite important uh, portion of our activities, the uh, Kinburn Peninsula. In uh, and Kherson, yeah, I actually wanted to ask about uh, that because over- you know the prevailing wisdom is that that Kinburn kin spent and the peninsula is not really defendable because it's under fire control from the Russians. Yeah, and uh, the same uh, the same stuff with Ukrainians. So uh, because you know it means that uh, no Ukrainian, no Russians can keep troops in uh, Kinburn spent or. Peninsula. What is the correct pronunciation? I can't remember. Well, excuse well, me. Well, there's a spit, uh, which so is that very is narrow reason. piece, and then there's a broader spit. peninsula, yeah. 
Yes, yes. You know, uh, sometimes when uh, colleagues ask me, uh, could you describe the situation in uh, uh, Kinburspan? I said, listen, guys, glance on the Zmine Island, Snake Island. It's the same. Flat lands, no hidden points where you can cover and uh, protect your troops. So... Uh, Ukrainian Ukrainian forces need just to push back uh, Russian presence from the uh, Spanto Peninsula, and uh, this is, uh, this is will be it from the perspective. Uh, in broader perspective, we could say the same about Crimea, using uh, long-range missiles, artillery, and other stuff there. So right now, uh, we we well, I can't say. 100%, but we are able to keep under fire control one of the exits from Crimea. With, with HIMARS? With the HIMARS. And, and uh, uh, somehow we reached to the Genichesk and Novo Alexeyevka and uh, Chuguyevka and other locations uh, on other part, on other exit from Crimea. Uh, so you can imagine what will happen if we will uh, advance in the direction of Melitopol and uh, and uh, liberate Melitopol. Well, you, so you also somehow all... were able to hit several bases in Crimea itself, which is still uh, puzzling to everyone Absolutely else. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Mo- moreover, when I was mentioning about uh, uh, adva- uh, advance to the Azov Sea shore, it was the same idea because uh, it will expand our zone of influence to more bases and uh, military objects in Crimea, Russian, which will make them absolutely vulnerable. You know, you know, Russians created a huge network of uh, military support and supply in Crimea, but it doesn't mean that they would be able to protect them. So, so I want to be so, very clear. The Russian troops in Crimea. Sorry, yeah, I want to be very yeah. clear uh, and, and kind of pinpoint you on this question. You believe that it makes sense for Ukraine to try to retake Crimea before trying to retake even the, some of the territory that was lost since February 24th, like Mariupol, because in part Mariupol is very close to the Russian border, Rostov, Taganrog, and, and the Russians could potentially resupply their forces there, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It makes sense from the political and military perspective. From political perspective, it will be a huge political impact to, uh, to let's say, to reputation of the Kremlin regime. And who knows, uh, retaking of Crimea may create some uh, internal movements or even coup d'etat in Kremlin, uh, which can stop or terminate in, in most cases at war. And you're not worried about escalation because I think in the West there's a lot of concern that this would trigger maybe no, a nuclear response. No, no, response. please. no, please. Listen, uh, there were so many red lines uh, declared by Russians which were already crossed, so I don't bloody care about it anymore. And uh, coming back to Crimea from military perspective, don't forget about the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. So pushing back Russians from the military bases, uh, fleet bases in Crimea uh, will put them in absolutely inconvenient and vulnerable situation because, of, uh, you know, in full capacity, Russian fleet does not able to operate from uh, northern Kafka's bases only. And uh, it will mean 
common advantage for the most of uh, Black Sea countries because right now using uh, uh, an umbrella of Ukrainian anti-ship missiles, we opened a so-called uh, Grain Corridor from Ukraine to, to south to east and so on. And it will expand, uh, liberation of Crimea will expand a safe zone in the Black Sea to prevent any pirate attacks of Russian fleets uh, against uh, cargo ships over there. Yeah. So, and uh, it will make a Russian flank on the south very vulnerable. I'm, to- I'm talking about the North Kafkas and other regions in Russia itself. So two last questions, Sergey. One is your assessment of Suravikin, since he's taking over as the commander of the operation on the Russian side, it seems like the Russians have turned off the stupid mode, or at least the stupidest mode that they've had since the beginning of this war. And he's done some capable things, building more defensive fortifications, withdrawing from their non-defensible position in Hersong. Do you feel like you're facing a much more capable ground commander than you have been since the start of this conflict? Well, you know, from the materialistic and communist perspective, as I studied during my uh, military school, I have to say that, uh, I have to say that uh, individual in a history may play a role, but like a partial role or tactical role, something like that. But from the general perspective, as I mentioned before, there is only one uh, capable general in in a, or real general in the Russian army, uh, General matrix or general Shablon, if I, I could use such a definition, because of Russian uh, generals are prisoners of doctrine, of old doctrine, and even two or three of them, despite of their brilliant mind, uh, are not able to change uh, procedures. Yeah. Shablon, for, for our listeners, uh, is, is a Russian word for pattern, basically. So they follow patterns, right? Yeah, pattern. Yeah, yeah. So, so, sorry. Yes, you, you're definitely right. So this is what I'm talking about. Yes, he may create some uh, good stuff for Russian forces. But in general concept, uh, from strategical uh, strategic perspective, he can't do much. Uh, to turn uh, the line of war in another direction. And, and what what do you make of the prospects for a Russian offensive? Zeluzhny seems to be really concerned about it. You do have more mobilized personnel that are flowing to the front lines and potentially they could mobilize more people. Do you think that could have a difference for them? They are running out of ammunition now, as we've talked about, so... A military that's so dependent on ammunition, even if you have lots of people, uh, may not be able to advance as much as they could have, you know, a year ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, uh, I totally agree with the concern of uh, General Zaluzhny, because, you know, in fact, we still have uh, quite strong enemies in front of us. And uh, despite of, you know, some of our stupid guys share an idea that uh, those troops are completely demotivated, it is not correct. Uh, 
Because of propaganda achieves a result. And um, the most of Russian troops are highly motivated just to do their job to try to destroy Ukraine. With that regard, we have to be very careful. Uh, and uh, I still have a concern about the possible Russian offensive actions in uh, different directions. But I have to emphasize different directions and not simultaneously. Because of, uh, as we can see now, uh, Russians are able to conduct quite uh, limited offensive actions in different locations of the front line, but not able just to conduct uh, comprehensive and full-scale uh, scale offensive from different directions. Right now, despite of the deployment of a quite big number of troops, uh, my main concern is about, as we discussed already, uh, Svatova direction where Russians are able to concentrate a lot of troops and it looks reasonable because of they have a, like a backup of Russian territory. So there is no limitation for them just to make a maneuver by forces, by uh, armament and ammunition. So they may create uh, such a big number of troops uh, which may allow them just to conduct uh, an offensive action. There. And, and the goal of that offensive would but be to what? To retake Izum? Uh, to to hard to uh, well not only zoom Kupiansk uh, to uh, all, all the way to the north uh, yeah. move uh, to 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 north to Kharkiv because you know Kharkiv re, uh, remain a very uh, important target for Russian uh, occupation and Kharkiv is the second city in Ukraine so and it's a huge industrial city I have to say that right now Kharkiv do a great job uh, repairing uh, tanks and uh, infantry battle vehicles so why uh, wouldn't may, if, if their objective imagine. is Kharkiv why wouldn't they try to go across the border from Belgorod uh, Kharkiv is very close to the Russian border there why w- would you go all the way from the east but uh, it is about the ability to concentrate the troops. Uh, I may uh, re-ask you about the uh, Chernigiv Oblast uh, and Belarus. It's the same stuff, actually, because of, you know, uh, Russians having a clear strategic target as a Kiev as the capital of Ukraine to capture it, uh, they should concentrate their troops, but they did, they didn't, they do, they will not do it. It's too late for them because of they lost their chance. And now they are able just to create any potential threat for Ukrainian defensive line or, def- uh, or Ukrainian territory from those locations where they have a presence uh, of troops already. So you, you're not concerned know, about it. Of, uh, you're not concerned about a new offensive from Belarus? No, absolutely no. not. It's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, potentially, potentially, we may discuss the option of offensive from Belarus in a in a perspective, but not now. In next one or two months, yeah, it's too late. It's too bloody late because of you know. Uh, I very carefully monitor and observe the situation with the deployment uh, of Russian troops to Belarus, and after two months, even three months, since the mid of October. We have a deployment of, of uh, if I'm not mistaken, 11, maybe 12,000 of Russian troops only, which is not enough to create a, a real threat for Ukrainian defensive position in the northern Ukraine. Moreover, moreover, uh, you know, uh, another critical point for us just to pay attention for to mobilization of Belarusian forces. But it may be done 
only in a cooperation and in conjunction with the deployment of Russian troops. So, and I was quite concerned uh, monitoring the situation uh, in the first 10 days of December, where I, when I suppose Belarusian, will, Belarusian de facto authority will declare a mobilization. They didn't do that. Why? Because of uh, lack of Russian troops in Belarus. There is a huge difference. Uh, there is a huge difference in mentality of Belarusian and Russian society. Yes, Belarusian society is, uh, was under high pressure of Russian propaganda. However, uh, they do not have the same uh, mentality as Russians have. So that is why the idea of a ground attack from Belarus to Ukraine using Belarusian forces does not have a huge support in Belarusian society. Well, and there are real questions about the ability of the Belarusian military to actually execute offensive operations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by themselves, uh, separately from Russians, even after mobilization, they would be not able to do any offensive actions. They do not have enough capabilities. They do not have enough uh, mobilization resources to do so. And uh, frankly speaking, they don't have like a battle experience. Over the last 30 years, Belarusian armed forces did not participate even uh, in a peacekeeping operation. They have no clue what does it mean, uh, smell of gunpowder, in a real smell one. Uh, And so uh, they can do, they can be used uh, commonly with uh, Russian forces. But Russians might be like a backbone of that uh, offensive group of troops. Belarusians uh, will be used as a supporters. This is the first option. And second option, what is the reason to conduct such an uh, offensive from Belarus? Will it get uh, any advantages for attackers? No. It's too bloody late now because of, you know, Ukrainian forces already prepared that zone uh, for the battle. And they are ready for that. Uh, that is why I am... I have no doubts that uh, it will not be like a real uh, offensive action, real offensive uh, with a deep uh, impact to the Ukrainian territory. It may be like a demonstrative, provocative actions, something like that, uh, in order to keep uh, uh, additional Ukrainian forces in, in that direction, but not like a huge uh, full-scale offensive from that direction. It's too late. Logistic is a key point of Russian weakness now. Well, uh, Sergey, this was absolutely fascinating. I want to thank you again for joining us. I know it's very late uh, where you are now. We're recording it uh, almost at nighttime for you, but uh, really, really appreciate it. Uh, really important to get this perspective um, to our audience. So thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome at any time. Ждет Севастополь, Симферополь и Джанкой. Ведь украинский воин есть для вас родной. С криками странными, с бабами драными Валит из Крыма орда в парах родной.